Hey guys, and thanks for checking out this episode of the John Cambia Show podcast, the audio only version of the John Cambia Show on YouTube. This episode was recorded on Thursday, July the 30th, 2020, titled Universal and AMC's Incompetence Compared to Disney, Warner Brothers, and Regal. We're glad that you're joining us today, guys. And remember, listening to this podcast, you can also get a comment or question on the live questions part of the show by simply using the tip link in the description of this podcast at streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question on the show and you'll be supporting the show at the same time. And for now, let's get to the episode. With all that down, let's move in to main topic number one today. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Avril Goel, who writes, Hey, John, greetings from India. Well, thank you so much for writing in from India, man. We appreciate that. So news just came out that Warner Brothers will be releasing a Dune trailer and a Wonder Woman final trailer with the Inception re-release. That's going to be in mid-August. Do you think that they will also be released online? And if not, would people go into theaters just to see those trailers? What are your thoughts? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, one of the films, especially if you ask Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett, I think Robert would probably say his two most anticipated films of the year are Dune and the James Bond film. I don't know which order he'd have them in. But Dune is one of those movies that we're all really, really excited about. And they've just announced that they're going to put out its first trailer. And oddly enough, it's not going to be attached to a new movie. It's going to be attached to the re-release of Inception that's coming out in a few weeks. But it's not just the Dune trailer. There's other stuff being attached to it as well. This comes to us from Dark Horizons who writes, Those extras, because there's going to be a few extra things attached to the Inception re-release. The first trailer for Denis Villeneuve's Dune a new trailer for Wonder Woman 1984, a near four-minute Tenet sneak peek, the reel uh, initially intended to be screened at the ultimately canceled CinemaCon 2020. So they had a presentation of Tenet ready for CinemaCon this year. Obviously, CinemaCon got canceled, so they're going to show that with the Inception screening for everybody. Uh, And a special introduction from Christopher Nolan and a four-minute featurette about Inception made specifically for this re-release. And, of course, that, once again, comes to us from Dark Horizon. All right. So, obviously, with this Inception re-release, and let's let's call it what it is. The Inception is getting re-released because they want to use it to build up momentum for Tenant getting released, which is supposedly coming out in North America on September 3rd. We'll see if it's actually able to make that date. But whether it does or doesn't, it's going to be released internationally at the end of August. And there are four main pieces of content that are going to be attached with it. Trailer for Dune. New trailer for Wonder Woman 84. A four-minute sneak peek at Tenet. And a special four-minute featurette about Inception itself. So when we come down to the question of, do I think we will get this stuff put online as well? I think there are two answers to that question. Answer number one, will the Dune trailer and the Wonder Woman 84 trailer go online? Of that, I really don't have much doubt. I have no reason to doubt that the Dune trailer and the Wonder Woman 84 trailer will go online almost immediately once it airs in theaters with Inception, if not before. Like we might even see that Dune trailer and that Wonder Woman 84 trailer drop before the Inception screening start. So we'll have to see how, you know, Warner Brothers wants to deal with that sort of situation. But 
for the special feature of both Tenant and the special feature for Inception, if you guys remember historically, Christopher Nolan likes to put out marketing material that is exclusive to movie theaters, at least exclusive to movie theaters for a while. So I got to be honest with you, I wouldn't doubt for a second if when the Dune trailer drops online and that new Wonder Woman 84 trailer drops online, if we do not see the new Tenet featurette or the four-minute behind-the-scenes kind of Inception feature, I wouldn't be surprised at all if those two parts don't drop online. So yes to one, no to the other. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. The other part of your question, though, about do I think people will go to cinemas just to see these four pieces of content? We're living in a different era now than we were, say, 10 years ago. But yeah, I got to say, I think some people, I think there's going to be some people who would be on the fence about going out to the theaters to see Inception in, in the movie theaters again. Inception has a lot of fans, but not everybody's going to run out to the theater when probably a lot of them already have it in their home video library. But I think there's going to be a bunch of people that are on the fence about it. And I think those people with the promise of a new Dune trailer on the big screen of a new Wonder Woman 84 trailer on the big screen, a four minute sneak peek at Tenet and a four minute kind of mini doc about Inception itself. Yeah, I, I do believe there are going to be some people that are going to be motivated and that'll push them over the edge. Now, not a ton of people. I don't think those four little special pieces of footage are going to make Inception go from making $2 million at the box office to making $12 million at the box office. I don't think it's going to make that big of a difference. But I, yeah, I think there are going to be some people who are really on the fence about going out to see it that those little extra bits just may push it over. Question for you guys is this. What do you think about those two questions? Number one, do you think they're going to drop those four pieces of content online? Do you think like me, they're going to drop a couple, but maybe withhold a couple? And do you think there's going to be many people that are like, well, I wasn't sure I was going to go see Inception in the theaters again, but if it's going to have all that other stuff, sure, I'll go. Are you one of those? Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by King Strider. And King Strider writes, hey, John, Spider-Man Home 3, I guess that's what we can call it is Home 3, uh, Spider-Man Home 3 is set to come out on December 17th, 2021. Black Adam, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson superhero film for DC, is set to come out on December 22nd, 2021. It was just five days apart. One's got to move. Spider-Man just moved to December 17th, 2021, so I think it won't be that one. Black Adam's been in development uh, since, the, since the dinosaurs went extinct, so I don't think uh, they want to delay it again either. Which one will move? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. With the moving of Spider-Man 3 recently to that December of 2021 date, it does put it in very dangerous close proximity to Black Adam, five days removed from when Black Adam is supposed to come out. December has proven to be a month where you can, in some circumstances, release a bunch of high-profile films relatively close to each other and still do okay, and still do okay. However, I think one of them is going to move 
And that movie that's going to move is most likely going to be Black Adam. Now, it's not because Black Adam or DC is worried too terribly much about Spider-Man 3, although both Spider-Man and Black Adam should be worried about opening that close to each other. But I, I do think you're going to see Black Adam move, but it's not because they're overly worried about Spider-Man 3. I think Black Adam was going to move regardless of Spider-Man moving there. This comes to us from the folks over at The Hollywood Reporter who write the following. A source says the streamer, that's Netflix, is accelerating plans to finish up on the action thriller Red Notice. Now, remember, Red Notice is that Netflix movie that Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Gal Gadot, and Ryan Reynolds are all in. And they started production on that film before the COVID-19 lockdown. So Netflix is looking to get going on that again. Anyway, let's get back to the quote here. A source says that Netflix is accelerating plans to finish up the action thriller Red Notice starring Dwayne Johnson. The actor, Johnson, who lives in Georgia, is said to be eager to get back to work in his home state, and the plan as of now is to wrap Red Notice before he can get started on his next feature, the superhero movie Black Adam for New Line. Sources note that Black Adam is not likely to get off the ground until 2021. Let me read that last part again. The plan as of now is to wrap Red Notice before Dwayne Johnson can get started on his next feature, the superhero movie Black Adam for New Line. Sources note, and this is The Hollywood Reporter again, that Black Adam is not likely to get off the ground until 2021. That kind of, of leaves us in a situation here where, okay, let's even, let's take the Spider-Man angle of this out of it for a second even if spider-man 3 did not just move to within five days of black adam's supposed release date it kind of looks like black adam's going to have to move anyway now look a lot of movies there are a lot of movies out there that can do pre-production shoot the movie do post-production and be released all within six months there are movies that you can do that with absolutely they are maybe even shorter than that but a movie that's going to be really post-production heavy and have all the work that's going to be need to be done on it, like a Black Adam is, is you know, assumedly going to have to have. It is doubtful, not impossible, not impossible, but doubtful that Dwayne Johnson could wait until February or March of 2021 to even start shooting Black Adam and then expect that just in December of that same year, Black Adam will be all ready to go to release in theaters. That seems unlikely. That seems unlikely. So again, even if we take the Spider-Man 3 angle of this out of it, it kind of looks like Black Adam's going to move anyway. Now you take that situation... You take that scenario, that Spider-Man 3 is now within five days, add that to the fact that it doesn't look like, at least according to The Hollywood Reporter, that Black Adam is going to be able to start shooting until at least 2021, then I'd say it starts to look pretty definitive that you are going to see one of those two big superhero movies move. And it's not going to be Spider-Man because Disney just moved it there, or Sony just moved it there, I should say. Sony just put Spider-Man there. They're not about to move it again just like that. It does kind of look like Black Adam will be the one to move. But again, just to reiterate what I was mentioning a little bit earlier, I think it kind of looked like Black Adam was going to move even if it wasn't for the fact that Spider-Man had to move there too. So there you have it. Question is, guys, what do you think is going to happen here? Do you think maybe Spider-Man and Black Adam will go head-to-head -head in the December 
you know, calendar of 2021? Do you think, yeah, no problem. Dwayne The Rock Johnson and that crew, they can get in there and shoot that movie, edit it, post-production it, and have it ready to go in December. Maybe you feel they can. What are your thoughts on that? Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down and out of the way, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by our good friend Kevin Rubio, who writes... Variety is recording tonight that Comic-Con at home, remember San Diego Comic-Con had to go all virtual this year because of the pandemic, and they called it Comic-Con at home. Variety is reporting tonight that Comic-Con at home overall is a bust. Yes, they are. And we'll get into why in just a minute, uh, is a bust. With social media talk about panels being down 95% despite having high profile guests, sparking the question. If Comic-Con throws a convention and nobody talks about it, did it even happen? Can numbers like these be transposed onto other social gatherings like cinemas and predict their outcome? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Kevin. And yeah, it, it is it is staggering. Look, one of the big heartbreaks for me within our little sphere of entertainment lovers, one of the big heartbreaks for me out of the whole pandemic, again, speaking completely within the confines of being entertainment lovers was the fact that Comic-Con had to get canceled. You know, I, I love going to Comic-Con. Comic-Con is just good for the soul to be surrounded by multiple hundreds of thousands of people who are just happy and having a good time and celebrating their fandom. And there's just something, new, you know, uh, nutritious for the soul being there. I, I go to Comic-Con and despite the fact that it's exhausting, I come away from it feeling refreshed every year. But anyway, that aside, Obviously, they couldn't have it this year, so they went ahead and made the decision to do a virtual one. Not a terrible idea. But despite the fact that they were able to get like a New Mutants panel, the boys panel, Bill and Ted and stuff like that to do these virtual panels, it really paled in comparison to the talent lineup they were able to get. As a result, not just of that, but other things we'll talk about here in a second, the amount of social media attention for Comic-Con at home was significantly down. This comes to us from the folks at Variety who writes, according to data from social media analytics firms, listen first, tweets that mentioned Comic-Con at home were down 95% from 2009's live convention. Just 93,681 tweets over the five-day event against 1,719,000 tweets in 2019. Tweets about the top 10 TV events were similarly down 93% and tweets about the top five movies, uh, movie panels were down a shocking 99%. So look, Comic-Con clearly did what they had to do. I mean, there's no getting it. They did what they had to do. They made a transition. They pivoted to doing it at home virtually and they did what they could. And you know what? Despite the fact that they didn't get a lot of the big properties, they still managed, like we said, they were managed to pull out the boys and they, were, they managed to pull out um, a what we do in the shadows panel and new mutants. And by the way, new mutants made big news announcing that they were going to stay on the August 28th release date. They dropped new footage. So did the boys, all that kind of stuff. But there was simply not the energy. There was simply not the momentum. There was simply not that wave of positivity coming out of Comic-Con that we are used to seeing. In this case, a 95% drop of social media mentions compared to last year. 
I think there are two main reasons for this, for what for Comic-Con being a bust, as Variety would put it. I think there's two main reasons. Reason number one, we've already mentioned. There wasn't nearly as many celebrity participants. There wasn't nearly as many of the panels. There wasn't nearly as much representation there from the entertainment industry as there is in other years. That is one significant part. Absolutely. I, however, would go so far as to say that the other and maybe even more major significant part is this. Nothing replaces being there in person. Nothing replaces being there in person. <coughs> Pardon me. There is an energy level and an enthusiasm and an electricity that is generated by people actually being there that then catches fire and spreads across the internet. You know, let, let, let me put it this way. Um, a little bit of an example of this is, look, growing up, if all I had ever done was watched Toronto Maple Leaf hockey games, as a kid, I would have been interested in Toronto Maple in the Toronto Maple Leafs and in the sport of hockey. Well, being Canadian, it's in my, I would have been into hockey no matter what, but I became, I would have been a Toronto Maple Leafs fan just because I was watching on TV. But what made me a, I'm convinced of this, what made me a lifelong Toronto Maple Leafs fan was my father spending ungodly amounts of money to take me as a kid to a Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game. To go to Maple Leaf Gardens, to go to to actually go physically in person, be at a Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game, that solidified it for me. You know, and when I track my my love of my team back, it goes to that moment as a kid. My dad, and I still remember the overly cramped seats that we had to sit in, the stale food that we had to eat because they weren't great on concessions, but. It was that moment actually physically being there in the arena. There was nothing that, that could not be replicated watching the hockey games at home. Couldn't be replicated in the least. I, I think of a movie experience. You know, if I had first watched The Empire Strikes Back on home video, I'm sure I would have loved it. I'm sure I would have loved it. But my first experience with Empire Strikes Back was my one of my dad's younger sisters, my aunt, took me to the Tivoli Theater in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to go watch Empire Strikes Back on the big screen and being in that room and hearing the gasps when Vader says, no, I am your father, and being part of that energy as people in the audience cheered when the first walker went down and all that kind of stuff, being there made all the difference in the world. And I would propose... That for something like Comic-Con, actually being there in town, whether you're in Hall H or just in the convention center, there's an intangible thing that cannot be replaced by seeing it online. And so what happens is all these hundreds of thousands of people at Comic-Con, incredibly fired up, all that energy, all that buzz, and then it overflows online and starts to spread like wildfire. And so... You know, I would kind of suggest that, yeah, the lack of some of the bigger panels is probably one of the things, but I think an even bigger thing was nothing replaces in an event like Comic-Con actually being there. Nothing replaces it. 
Nothing can come close to being a substitute. Nothing can even imitate it. Being there is so infinitely superior that I'm not surprised that once it comes to online, even with big announcements coming out and everything, I'm not surprised at the social media interactions of what was going on with Comic-Con at home. And I think they did a good job, all things considered. I think the folks at Comic-Con can hold their heads high. I think they did as good of a job as you could do. But nothing replaces being there. I do want to suggest one thing, though. I want to suggest one thing. And I don't know what you guys are going to think about this. But, you know, the reality is not everybody can get to Comic-Con, right? And even if you're at Comic-Con, nobody can go to all the panels. Nobody can get to all the panels and all the events or be in Hall H every time or be in Ballroom 20 or the all the dozens of other panels that are going on at the same time. Here's one little change I think Comic-Con should make moving forward once Comic-Con is live and in person again. Because, you know, even if you wanted to go to Comic-Con and you're able to go to Comic-Con, you're going to be lucky if you can get passes. Passes sell out like in a matter of minutes. Also, because they keep it in San Diego, you'll be lucky. You have to enter. You, I'm not joking. This isn't hyperbole for, the, for those of you who don't know about this. You have to enter a lottery to see if you can get a hotel room. So here's something that I think they should do that I think would be great for people who can't make it to Comic-Con and great for people who do go to Comic-Con. I want to suggest this. I want to suggest that if you get to go to Comic-Con, right? I think for an extra $10, you I think you should have the option if you go to Comic-Con that if you pay an extra $10 for your pass, then as soon as Comic-Con is ended, Comic-Con takes every single panel that was held. The biggest one with 6,000 people in attendance, the smallest one with 12 people in attendance. If you pay 10 extra bucks, then you get access to Comic-Con Online, which will be an online place where every single panel that was held there that year, you can now go in and watch. Because if I'm at Comic-Con... I could maybe get to 10, 12, 15 panels, not all 375 panels. It would be great if I can catch up on those later. I think Comic-Con should put cameras in every room, professionally record every single panel. And then for people who can't make it to Comic-Con, you offer a $25, uh, uh, that's too much, maybe a $15 deal. 15 bucks and you get access for the entire year to every single panel that was held at Comic-Con. Not some bad shaky phone cam version, actually professionally recorded and then curated and put online. So if you go, maybe five extra bucks and you get to watch all the things later. If you can't go and you stay at home, 15 bucks and you get access to all the hundreds of panels that happen and you can watch them all year. I think that would go a long way because you still get all the excitement of being there. Nothing beats being there, but also you give a little bit more access for people who attended and people who didn't attend. Just a little idea I want to throw out there. Question is, guys, I want to know what you think of my idea about that. Maybe they should record every panel and then create a virtual online pass that people can doing it live would be too difficult. You can't stream it live. There's just too many things going on, whatever. But maybe as soon as the the convention's over, 15 bucks, you can watch all of it. What do you guys think about that idea? Also, why do you think, do you agree with my reasoning about why Comic-Con at home 
struggled to come anywhere near the success of live Comic-Con. What are your thoughts on that? Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down and out of the way, let's move on to our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic today gets submitted to us by Movie Guy. And Movie Guy writes, Greetings, John. I work with a small theater franchise in Buffalo and the surrounding New York area. And as you can well imagine, the talk has been all universal in AMC. And none of it is kind or flattering. I imagine not. Uh, last year, this industry made $41 billion in box office revenue the third highest in history. Under the current model, both theatrical and streaming are enjoying great success. Why would AMC, who we all recognize are pathetically desperate, and Universal try to upend such success is the common question right now. Thank you for what you do. All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, to Movie Guy's point, obviously the big news that hit yesterday that we were talking about around here and everyone in the movie industry was talking about was this deal that AMC and Universal had come to an agreement on that sent shockwaves through the entire movie industry. Now, for those of you who may not have been here yesterday or you're just getting caught up on this, here's the Coles notes on what this deal entails. So this deal between AMC and Universal breaks this down. Number one, AMC will show Universal films because remember they had been saying that they weren't going to. AMC will show Universal Films. Point two, 17 days after release, Universal can put out those movies on premium VOD for a premium rental, probably 20 or 25 bucks. Remember, the current theatrical window is three months. Under this deal with AMC, Universal will shrink the theatrical window from around 90 days to 17 days. For premium VOD, 20 to $25. Point number three, AMC will get 10% of Universal's premium video on demand rental revenue from that movie. Now, some people are misunderstanding it. AMC is not going to get 10% of all of Universal streaming stuff. No, no, no. They're going to get 10% of the premium VOD rentals of those movies that AMC played in their theaters and then released to go on to premium VOD early. Point number four, a film cannot go to regular streaming services or regular rentals of three to six dollars until after the th regular three month window. So for at least three months or around three months, those universal movies have to only be available online in premium VOD charges, so like 20, 25, 30, however much money they're going to charge. And then after three months, then it can go on to a regular streaming service and then it can go to a regular rental price of three to six dollars. Then number five, Universal can wait longer to put out a POV uh, on a, a PVOD on a film if they so choose. So that's the basic idea of it. Now, we talked on this show yesterday about the fact that this will absolutely kill the movie theater industry. And we went into our reasoning why, but yeah, this, this deal were it to happen <coughs> would absolutely kill the movie theater industry. Now, here's the thing. This deal can't actually happen unless the other movie chains agree to it. So, and we explained this yesterday, but it's all well and good for AMC to say, oh, we don't mind if you put out your movies onto VOD just 17 days after theatrical release. That's fine with us. Just because AMC says that doesn't mean Universal can do it. Because Regal and Cineworld, their owners, 
have already come out and said, F this cold day in hell. We're not going to agree to this. No way. This model, Regal says, makes no sense. And so if Universal is going to put their movies on Regal screens, which let's face it, they have to. They're going to have to honor the regular theatrical window of 90 days. So it doesn't matter that AMC says they'll do 17 days unless the other movie theater chains agree to it. It's not going to go anywhere. Obviously, there has been a lot of backlash, both from other studios and in particular from other movie theaters. Uh, I told you guys yesterday about uh, that. I had two movie theater, neither of which were movie guy who just sent in that message. But I had two different people involved in movie chain ownership, uh, smaller ones, that one used the word stupid and the other used the word treacherous in talking about AMC. AMC has pissed off a lot of people in their own industry. As again, and again, Regal came out and put out their statement saying, hey, what AMC just did makes no sense. And in the article it wrote, it will be a cold day in hell. That real now listen lots of companies and corporations say one thing one day and then do something different the next so we'll see what happens but for now regal saying cold day in hell no we're not going to do this this is a dumb idea makes no business sense whatsoever and regal's right it makes no business sense whatsoever but the animosity apparently is also stretching out to universal as well this comes to us from the folks at variety who writes one european exhibitor who spoke to variety on the condition of anonymity said the level of animosity globally against Universal is like nothing I have ever seen. I don't think they care, but they have seriously pissed off people in the last 24 hours. And everyone feels the same way. This is from one of the exhibitors in Europe is saying that. And listen, I got to tell you, I've heard nothing but similar sentiments from people who have written into me, but also seeing in the Washington Post did a big story on this time about the animosity a lot of people are feeling towards Universal and towards AMC. But at the end of the day, the question becomes, why do studios like Disney and Warner Brothers and exhibitors like Regal understand that this Universal AMC supposed deal doesn't work. What is it that those organizations understand and know that Universal just doesn't seem to grasp or that AMC doesn't seem to grasp? I want us to, to take a look at this for a second. So let's go over to Mr. Campia's classroom again. But instead of using everybody complained about my chicken scratch and my handwriting is terrible. Uh, let's let's go over to a whiteboard here. OK, let's go to a whiteboard here. So. There's been a common refrain. I think there's some some basic misunderstandings here, right? Um, this is a saying I've seen a lot of people talking about lately. Adapt or die. You know, I, I've been hearing a lot of people parroting this phrase. Like there are some people. I mean, I think most people online understand that this universal AMC deal was terrible. But some people don't. And that's fine. But this phrase I keep hearing being said, well, adapt or die. What does that mean? Well, you got to change with the times, John. Okay, I, I get it. You you do need to change change with the times. I get it. But adapt or die doesn't mean do anything, right? Like if somebody comes in with a with a headache, the answer is to not you know take out their brain. You know, well, you got a headache. Well, let's just take their brain out. Uh, but that that leaves me in a worse position than I was with the headaches adapt or die you know 
or or you know say you know what it's getting to be summertime I, I man i'm having a hard time i want to lose like 15 pounds to kind of be a little bit in beach shape and whatever it is but i'm having a hard time oh well you know you know what you should do you should uh you should take a steak knife and 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 cut off a big part of your thigh and then you'll lose 15 pounds yeah but but i'll die if i do that adapt or die i mean yeah, you do need to adapt. Like all organizations, industries, uh, corporations, individuals, you need to be always able and willing and recognize when it's time to, to adapt. It is. But adapting doesn't mean doing something suicidal, right? And this whole adapt or die thing, um, some people have been interpreting that as, oh, even if it means doing something suicidal, like ensuring the long-term failure of the movie theater industry by entering into a stupid deal like AMC did with Universal. So that's the adapt or die thing. But <clears throat> I want to talk about how the movie theaters are adapting, but we'll get to that in a second. Let's look at this, okay? There's a few important facts that we need to keep in mind here because I want to look at and compare what Warner Brothers and Disney has been doing versus what Universal is trying to do and see why it is working for Warner Brothers and Disney. And Universal just seems clueless about it. Let, let's look at a couple of facts here. First thing that movie guy pointed out, $41 billion is what the box office made worldwide in 2019. $41 billion. That, as movie guy pointed out, represents the third biggest uh, box office result in history that is the third biggest box office result in history now some people have tried to write to me and say uh well you know the movie theater industry is doomed they're just like blockbuster they're, they're, they're just, blockbuster died well okay but the difference between blockbuster and what we have now with the movie theater industry is that blockbuster saw year after year massive if you go back and look at the reports blockbuster before their final demise year after year was taking massive drops in their profitability and then getting into sheer losses like loss after loss after loss and it was a massive decline the difference between that obviously and the movie theater industry well again 41 billion dollars in box office revenue and once again that represented the third biggest box office year in the history of cinema. So it's a false comparison trying to compare what's gone on, what went on with Blockbuster versus what's going on with the movie theaters right now. Uh, that just that just doesn't equate. That just doesn't equate. Now, listen, you guys know <laughs> on this show, I have yelled and screamed and insisted that there are a number of things that the movie theaters need to do to get more people back into the theaters. You guys know I talk about that all the time. So clearly that, there's still stuff theaters need to do. Make no mistake about it. But to try to equate the condition of the movie theaters right now compared to say like what Blockbuster was is a totally false equivalency. Again, we just had the third biggest box office year in history at $41 billion. So keep that in mind. Let's take a look for a second at Warner Brothers. All right. Let's take a, sec a look for a second at Warner Brothers. In 2019, Warner Brothers made, get this, almost $4.5 billion at the box office. In 2019 alone, Warner Brothers made 
billion dollars at the box office. Now, while they were making all that money at the box office, they also have an online thing that is both network. It's it's a little bit ambiguous because HBO is both on network television, but HBO is also online. But they've got HBO, right? And with HBO, they are approaching uh, 40 million users. HBO right now is, a, is approaching 40 million users. And in basic terms, th- these numbers might be off by a little bit. This was the closest numbers I could find. So l- we're talking ballpark here. So don't take this as being exact. But basically speaking, HBO generated $6 billion in revenue from HBO in the year, in the calendar year of 2019. I want you to take a look at these numbers. One is a little bit bigger than the other. Yes. But look at these numbers. Theatrically, $4.5 billion at the box office, while at the same time generating $6 billion in revenue in another method. In this case, HBO. And of course, now we have HBO Max. And they just took a 5% gain at HBO Max. Okay, so that's, that's Warner. Let's now take a look at Disney for a second. Disney, in 2019, made an astonishing $11.1 billion at the box office, right? In the theatrical exhibition of their movies alone, Disney, just last year, in 2019, made $11.1 billion. Well, guess what? At the end of 2019, they then launched their streaming service, Disney Plus, and they are now sitting at approximately 60 million users. Take a look at these two models. Warner Brothers and Disney have a two-pronged approach. Theatrical, post-theatrical, right? Warner Brothers made 4.5 at the box office, nearly $6 billion in revenue. <coughs> nearly $6 billion in revenue uh, when it comes to um, when it comes to like their HBO stuff. A balanced approach. Disney made $11.1 billion at the box office. And guess what? That didn't hurt or hinder their growth of their streaming efforts with Disney+. Plus. Nor did their streaming efforts, now granted it got started near the end of the year, did it have an adverse effect on their box office? What Warner Brothers and Disney both clearly understand is that they have a strategy of a both and situation. We make money in theaters that can't be duplicated. And then after the theatrical run, we understand that there's been a massive paradigm shift to subscription-based entertainment subscription-based entertainment. HBO was already on with that, but they've doubled down now with HBO Max. Disney recognized it, and so they've put all their effort behind Disney+. Plus. So they've recognized we've got a both-and situation. Make big money in theaters, and then a few months later, after we've made all this money in theaters, whether it's $4.5 billion like Warner Brothers. And by the way, 2019 wasn't Warner Brothers' best year. They still made $4.5 billion at the box office. Disney made $11.1 billion at the box office. And then they recognized then, after all that's done, we have developed this streaming platform where we are going to make money again. Because the old DVD sales thing isn't cutting it. We needed to make, they needed to adapt 
to a subscription-based reality. And now Warner Brothers and Disney live in a reality where it's like, hey, this is how we make money. We make money by having strong theatrical releases. And then after the fact, we use that content as an incentive to get people to sign up to our subscription services later on. We make money here and we make money here. It is a win for everybody. That has been what they've recognized and why this works. That's what they recognized and that's why this works. So let's look at that idea here. Again, let's keep that 41 billion up there. Adapt or die. Okay, so we've or we've seen the studios uh, adapted by converting, I'm going to say switching, con converting to a subscription-based uh, revenue uh, model. Okay? The studios have switched to a subscription-based revenue model when it comes to their post-theatrical world, right? So clearly they have adapted. Well, guess what? The movie theater industry, the theaters themselves, are have just gone through and are currently still in the middle of making the biggest metamorphosis in the history of the theater industry. Because guess what? Theaters, let me see if I can do this right. Theaters are also switching to a subscription-based system, right? Theaters are also switching over to a subscription-based system. So when people say, hey man, theaters got to adapt, the movie theaters have been adapting. And that's why we get AMC, um, I even forgot, what's what's the name? It's not Stubbs, what's it called? AMC, I forget the name of the, the subscription service. I'm a member, a a AMC subscription service. Regal's got Regal Unlimited, right? Um, Alamo Drafthouse just introduced, before the pandemic, just introduced their own subscription system. So what we've seen is that both the studios and the movie theaters themselves have done this massive shift of adaptation, moving to a subscription-based model. And guess what? In the case of the movie theaters, it's working. Regal Cinemas reported incredible numbers of signups for their subscription-based service. AMC Theaters had announced that after a year or two of really developing and investing in it to develop it, they just started turning a profit with their subscription-based service. Everything was going well until the pandemic hit. So I would say that to people who would say, well, theaters got to adapt or die, I would say yes. But shooting yourself in the face with a shotgun to cure a toothache is not the type of adaptation you need to make. That is counterproductive. And that's what this deal between AMC and Universal has been. It is counterproductive. Instead, we have seen studios and theaters embrace the idea of change and making a massive fundamental paradigm shift to subscription-based models. For studios, it's post-theatrical run. For the theaters, it's in-theatrical run, subscription-based models. They are adapting and they are changing. And we've seen places like Warner, not Warber, Warner and Disney do it extremely well. Warner and Disney, Warner Brothers and Disney are showing this is how you do it. And Universal has been like, oh, well, well, we're doing Peacock and well, blah, blah, blah. And, they, and just so they figure we don't, we can't succeed. We can't do it as well as Disney and Warner Brothers do it. So let's try to F up the whole system.
Let's try to F it all up. But they can succeed. Peacock can be something great. It really can. Once they change the damn name of the thing. Once they change the damn name of the thing. Peacock can succeed. But that is why you haven't seen studios like Warner Brothers or Disney in the past number of years try to press the theaters to shorten the exhibition window. Disney's never pressured. And not never. There was a time about 10 years ago. But in the in the most recent history. Disney has put no pressure on theaters to try to close the theatrical window because Disney knows and Warner Brothers seems to know that if you do your job right, that theatrical window not only works for the movie theaters, if you play your cards right, it works well for us, the studios as well. And that's why they haven't tried to do it. And that's why right now I think Regal, Warner Brothers, Disney, they're putting on they're basically exhibiting why they know what they're doing and Universal doesn't. And AMC apparently doesn't right now. Look, just because something is clearly the smarter thing to do, that does not mean people will do the smarter thing. We could find out tomorrow. Like Regal just said that no way in hell, hell will freeze over before we sign on for this deal. We've th- we've seen corporations do an about face, right? Maybe in three weeks we do see Regal sign up for it and it'll lead to the demise of the movie theater industry. Right now, all we can hope for is that sane minds prevail. That people start realizing, oh yeah, Warner Brothers knows what they're doing. Disney knows what they're doing. Regal knows what they're doing. These other places know what they're doing. AMC was in a place of desperation because they're in such debt. And when you're in desperate you know, desperate times, you do desperate things. Universal saw them as the weak buffalo in the herd and decided to target them just like lions do. It's like, who's, where's the weak one? There's the weak one right now. There's the injured one. AMC was the injured buffalo limping along because it's got so much debt. So they targeted them. But I, all we can do is hope that these cooler minds prevail. Anyway, guys, that's my little breakdown on that. What do you guys think about that? Do you think Disney and Warner Brothers are showing them how it's done? Maybe you think, you know what, despite everything I just said, you still think there's valid, valid arguments that the universal model is the way to go. What do you guys think about that? Uh, it doesn't have to be the same opinion as mine. What do you guys think? I want to know your thoughts on this. Jump down to the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With all that down and out of the way, let's now move over and start taking your live questions. Now, we're going to get our live questions started off here with a couple that we had left over from yesterday because we didn't have time to finish them all. But I want to remind you again, if you want to send in those questions, even if you're watching this show after the fact or if you're listening to the podcast after the fact, you can use this tip link anytime and your question or comment will be one of the first that gets answered on the next episode. StreamElements.com slash TV slash tip. All right. Let's get into the questions here, guys. And the first question comes to us from Dumbledore Calrissian, who writes, For me, the character arc of Luke was a natural progression. I totally bought why he had become an angry hermit on a planet J.J. actually put him on in The Force Awakens. And his recent arc in the movie is absolutely beautiful. I will die in defending this. Hey, listen, I agree. Now, look, it's, it's no big secret. I do have some issues I definitely have some issues with The Last Jedi. Overall, I enjoy I like the film. Overall, I like it. One of the things that I really loved was Luke's arc. And I've had this discussion with some friends of mine. It's like, you know, oh, the Luke in The Last Jedi wasn't anything like Luke. I'm like, have you watched the original Star Wars movies? I got a question if you've watched the original Star Wars movies, because that Luke Skywalker is completely consistent with the Luke Skywalker. Now, it doesn't mean you have to like it. Doesn't mean you need to like it, but I take real issue when people try to tell me that, 
oh, that Luke is that's not what the way Luke would be. Because I'm, I'm always like, did you watch the original movies? And I'll sit there and point out this is exactly why that's very um, conceivable that Luke would end up like this and in that place. It doesn't mean you need to like what they did. Not at all. But I take issue with the idea that it was inconsistent. I thought it was completely consistent. And I'll have that debate with anybody. I'll have that debate with anybody. Um, I actually had a little bit of that debate. We only got started, but me and a friend of mine, Kyle Newman, uh, who directed uh, Fanboys, the movie Fanboys, we had a little bit of a discussion on that, but it was really good. It was a really good discussion. Anyway, so I'm with you on that one, Dumbledore. I am. All right. <coughs> Starscream writes, Hi, John and Rob. Well, Rob's not here today. On a th He's normally not here on Thursdays. Uh, I was watching Star Trek, uh, the original series on Netflix streaming. When I found the series on Blu-ray, I immediately switched to the Blu-rays. I realize they are the same, but I remember it was the last time my mom bought me a present. The show is still great. I mean, listen, we talk about this all the time, Starscream, right? About how one of the great, one of the many great things about movies and television and entertainment and the art is that it also creates bonding moments. Whether it's, I, I will always cherish that movie because I remember going to go see it with my brother who maybe lives overseas now or has passed away or whatever. I still remember that movie because it was the first movie me and my wife went to. I still remember that movie because it's the last movie me and my dad went to before I lost my dad. It creates these bonding moments. But even in little things like that, like, like the, I got these Blu-rays, they were a gift from my mom and I, it just creates this, Association. That's one of the beautiful things about the art. And you're right, man. I still love the original series. I don't care because the original series is so theme based to me, even though the visual effects are hilarious, like watching a starship with a countdown clock. That's an analog dial clock. <laughs> that's kind of funny. It's a little dated. Yes, but thematically it holds up. So I agree with you, Starscream. All right. Next up, uh, the failed journalist. Uh, sends in a $20 tip. Thank you so much for that failed journalist. I appreciate that, man. Um, uh, I know it's not the manly thing to do, but I cried a lot after the full weight of what AMC did with Universal sank in and the massive ramifications this could have for movie theaters. Am I crazy to feel so emotional about this? I, I don't think so. Because look, I was just talking about, I talk a lot on the show about, you know, uh, my, my movie going experiences like, uh, my, my best friend growing up who just recently passed away a couple years ago, uh, he and I going down to Jackson Square Cinemas in Hamilton, Ontario to go watch the 89 Batman movie together. You know, uh, just those experience or think about being in the theaters for Endgame. When Thanos and Thor are fighting and all of a sudden Mjolnir flies through the air and it ends up in Captain America's hands and the way the theater erupts and being in that energy nothing replaces that nothing replaces that those bonding moments that are created remember i was talking a little bit earlier in the show about how it's cool to, to watch the hockey games on tv that's cool but what what fused me as a lifelong leaf sand was actually being there and there's nothing like it. Like you can watch Avengers Endgame on the TV for the first time. And that's great. It's great. But it doesn't come close, not remotely close to being in a theater with other fans and all that and the big screen and the big sound and the energy of the room. I mean, I love, I'm thinking just a, a recent comedy. Well, not, it's not all that recent, but this is the end, you know, James Franco, um, Seth Rogen, uh, uh, a bunch of other guys 
I remember being in the theater. If I'd seen that for the first time on TV, it would have been funny. But being in a room filled with 200 other people and all of you laughing hysterically together, it just it, it creates a different experience. And that's why like a lot of people make fun of me. And that's fair. A lot of people make fun of me because of my love of going to the movies. I love going to the movies as much as I love the movies themselves. And the notion of some dick at AMC theaters trying to undermine the movie going experience. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, man. I love that. You know, Ann and I, our favorite thing to do together is, you know, walk and take a 20 minute walk, 15 minute walk together up the street to AMC Burbank 16 and go and watch a movie together. We just love that. Um, and I can see why the thought of that maybe being sabotaged that that could make you emotional if you really think about those moments if you think about those experiences that you'd really be losing out on and that we'd be losing out on moving forward i get it believe me uh failed journalist i i completely get it all right superman kenobi writes uh hey john spent years watching but this is my first time writing oh thanks so much kenobi i appreciate that uh thanks for your countless insights and your terrific audience engagement uh fun question i want to ask do you think dr strange 2 will reference sam raimi's spider-man movies at all yeah i do I don't think it'll be over the top and I don't think it'll be obvious. Now, for those of you who don't know what he's talking about, um, it's looking like Sam Raimi, the director of Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 and all that stuff, that he's going to be directing Doctor Strange 2. It looks like that's what's happening. We'll, we'll see, but that's what it looks like. He's definitely working on that movie, but it looks like he's going to be directing it as well. We'll see. And of course, he directed the original Spider-Man movie. I do think at minimum, at minimum, I absolutely think that we are going to get uh, like references, whether it's an Easter egg or a little thing planted here or a little thing planted there. I absolutely think we're going to get some of that. Yeah, of that. Now, I don't think I don't know that we're going to get anything overt. I don't think Kevin Feige will let them take away from the movie just to make a big gag, like maybe having Spider-Man pop up in Doctor Strange 2 and do wearing all black walking down the street. I don't think they're going to do that, but some minor little references, I absolutely think they won't be able to pass up the temptation on that, but it'll be subtle. I think it'll be subtle. All right. Uh, Thanos Doc tips in $20. Thank you so much, Thanos Doc, for supporting the channel on that level, man. And Thanos Doc writes in, guys, we'll get past this virus uh, mishugas, uh, Yiddish for uh, Agatha, I'm not quite sure what that means either. Favorite comedies. Number one, Bringing Up Baby. Number nine, A Shot in the Dark. Number eight, Stripes. There's one that doesn't get mentioned a lot. Number seven, uh, oh, Young Frankenstein. Number six, Tape Heads. I got it. I'm not familiar with Tape Heads myself. Uh, number five, Blazing Saddles. Number four, Dodgeball. Dodgeball is a movie that does not get enough credit. It is a fabulous country uh, a comedy, man. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. I freaking love that movie. I, I, it should be more recognized. Anyway, number three, the original Caddyshack. Number two, question mark. Number one, Free Enterprise. Now, some of you may not have heard of Free Enterprise. Free Enterprise was a movie that starred the main guy from Will and Grace. I, I forget his name right now. Free Enterprise is this movie that starred the main guy from Will and Grace and starred William Shatner. And it was directed by Robert Meyer Burnett. 
I believe it was also written. I think Robert also wrote it. I'm not sure, but it was at the very minimum. It was uh, directed by Robert Meyer Burnett. Uh, so that is the movie Free Enterprise. If you get a chance somehow, some way to see it, you absolutely should. So thanks for sending that in, Thanos, Doc. I appreciate that, man. I'm sure Rob will appreciate the mention for Free Enterprise. All right, next up. Anonymous viewer writes, hey, John, we have a chain called View, said View, here in the UK. I'm very familiar with View. Uh, used to be owned by Warner Brothers, and it's $5, 7 to $10 American per ticket. And at that price, you can chance a film, which might not be good, Whilst if it's 30 to $40 on VOD, you probably wouldn't chance the film. <clears throat> Listen, that has been one of the big arguments that's been brought up before by a lot of people in the industry. It's like, look, a number of people will pay $10 to go out because it does a couple of things. Number one, you're taking a chance on a movie, 10 bucks to take a chance on a movie. That's fine. But also it's getting you a night out. Right. People will pay for movie tickets and people do pay for movie tickets because it gives them a night out. They get to get out of the house. They get to go do something with their friends or a loved one or a first date or whatever. It gives you that thing. Whereas taking a chance on a movie and dropping 30 bucks on a movie that you're not sure about and it doesn't get you out of the house. It's not an event. You know, uh, there are for some people. It's a bonus for some people. It's a detraction. So it really all depends on the individual. I can see for both, like for some people, depending on the movie. Yeah. Just being able to watch it anytime is a great bonus. I could totally see that argument, but for other people, it's like, eh, I was going to watch it, but I wanted to watch it going out. You know, like take, for example, last night, my wife and I, Anne, um, Anne and I, I own Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I own that movie. We could have easily sat at home last night and watched Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse again if we wanted to. But we didn't. We went out to the drive-in. A drive-in that was filled to capacity. And we talked to one of the people who was saying it's filled to capacity every night. It's filled to capacity every night. Even though they're only showing movies that everybody's already seen, and probably a lot of them like me, I own it. And I could have just sat at home last night, put on Spider-Man and the spider But what did we want to do? We wanted to go out. We wanted to go out and go into a unique environment with other people and watch Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And it was awesome. We had a fantastic time. But, uh, but yeah, again, anonymous viewer, that'll actually be a bonus for some. Some people will consider that an advantage. Some people will consider it a disadvantage. It all depends on the individual, I think. All right, next up, Alex Von Gollum writes, Hey, John, I'm not a Potterhead, but I am revisiting some of the lore. The AMC decision is like Voldemort drinking unicorn blood. It takes a toll. It keeps him alive, but if he stops drinking it, he is condemned to death, LOL. Yeah, listen, that's exactly kind of the analogy I made with what AMC did here. It's like AMC has a toothache, a really bad toothache. And when they drink this bottle of poison, it subsides the toothache a little bit. It relieves the toothache a little bit. The problem is that poison is going to kill you in three days. So, yeah, your solution right now will subside your tooth pain a little bit, but it's also going to kill you in three days. That's not a solution you should embrace. It does kind of address the short-term issue, but you can't afford to be short-sighted in this industry. You have to look long-term. 
which is why companies like Disney and Warner Brothers have always done well. They've always looked long term. They haven't always done everything right. Hell, I've talked a lot about things Disney's done that's frustrated me and that Warner Brothers has done that's frustrated me. But overall, they are they are long term focused. Right. We can do something now it might help us right now, but will it bite us in the ass later? And if it's going to bite us in the ass later, let's not do that. You know, so anyway, so I agree with you, Alex. All right. Next up, uh, Bunyan Snipe writes. Uh, being a PC gamer, have you ever played Star Citizen? I have not. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure I know what Star Citizen is. Hold on a second. Star Citizen. Uh, PC game. Let me see here. Star Citizen. Uh, what year did that come out? It uh, doesn't say. Okay. Oh, in 2003. I oh, know it's a, it's a successor to a 2003 game. I don't see a release date. I have never heard of Star Citizen. But you've got my attention now. I might have to check that out. I've actually been looking for a new PC game to play. So um, that's what I may have to check out. Thank you for putting that on my radar, Mr. Snipe. All right. Bojax writes, do you believe all the blame lies with HBO Max and Peacock or should some of it go with Roku and Amazon as well? Bojack is talking about the fact that um, Roku and Amazon Fire Stick, the two biggest streaming platforms in the world that, uh, that account for 70% of the streaming people do. And HBO Max and Peacock are not on those platforms yet. So do you believe all the blame lies with HBO Max and Peacock or should some of it go with Roku and Amazon as well? They seem to have been able to make deals with every other streaming platform, but those two. Well, listen, it always takes two to tango, right? It always takes two to tango. Whenever two people can't make an agreement, some of the blame, even if it's a tiny bit, some of the blame always rests with both of them, right? Maybe one is more responsible and more to blame than the other, but the it always takes two to tango. But what I think streaming services like HBO Max and, and Peacock are going to have to understand is that as streaming becomes now more important and a bigger part of the revenue that these entertainment companies are going to make, the vehicles they want to use to reach those audiences, Roku, Amazon, Fire Stick, etc., they're going to want an increased piece of the pie too. Now, look, if you came to me and said, hey, John, I'm going to make a hundred bucks tonight if I can deliver some pizzas, but I don't have a car. Can I use your car to deliver my pizzas so I can make a hundred bucks? And I'll probably say, sure, but you got to give me 25 bucks. If you're going to go out and make a hundred bucks, but you can't do it without me and the use of my car, I want to cut. I want 25 bucks. Now you can complain and you can argue that that's too much. And maybe you'd be right. Maybe me asking 25 bucks is a bit steep. But the reality is, I'm the one who spent all that money to buy the car. I'm the one who spends all the money to insure the car. I'm the one who spent all the money to put gas in the car. I'm the one who spent all the money to give upkeep to the car. I put a huge investment of my own money into that car. And if you want to use my car to make money for yourself, you're going to have to cut me in on it. And I think Roku is kind of in that same boat. Roku's like, listen, we have spent over a decade slowly but surely building this platform, spending hundreds of millions of dollars to get this platform, to make it the dominant platform in the industry. Yeah, if you want to hop on our backs and make us be your transportation to take you and connect you with the audience, you're probably gonna, you're gonna have to kick in and you're probably gonna have to kick in a little bit more than what you used to kick in because now it's becoming a bigger deal. 
But no, I completely agreed, Bojax. I believe some of the blame clearly also rests with with Roku and with Amazon Fire Stick. They should make the they sh- they've got to find a way to make these deals too, uh, and it does take two to tango. But again, I do put more of the onus on HBO and on Peacock to get those deals done. But we'll have to see what happens. All right, uh, next up. Uh, Darth Vader writes, <laughs> F the light side. So for those of you who know what Darth Vader's talking about, the other day on this show, somebody wrote in and said, man, I really hope we get an R-rated Darth Vader movie. And and that person's not alone. There are a bunch of people that would that would be interested in an R-rated Darth Vader movie. And and so I respect that. But like I myself, I do not understand why anybody would even want an R-rated Darth Vader movie. Like, what are we going to get in an R-rated Darth Darth Vader movie that we don't have already? Like, you look at the end of Rogue One. They say, well, I want to see Darth Vader killing a lot of people. Okay, but look at the end of Rogue One. We saw Darth Vader slicing through fools. Like, just wrecking shop. And it's PG-13 and we're good. And what did I say? I said... Like what? Just should we have a scene? You want a scene where somebody bursts in on Vader, and Vader's like, you know, uh, humping some girl against the wall, grabbing her boobs, and and you know, and go get out of here, fuck the light side, and and just say fuck the light side all the time. That becomes Vader's new slogan: fuck the light side. Uh, my lord, the rebels have appeared on our scanners. Fuck the light side, like that. Like, is that would that make the movie better? Like we got to show boobs and have Vader dropping f bombs. That would make the movie better just so we can get an R rating. So that's why I was like, I see no need for there to be an R rated Darth Vader movie. Nor do I see any, any way that making Darth Vader a Darth Vader property R would be an advantage. I just don't see any advantage. I don't see the upside uh, of making a Vader movie R rated. Now, you know me, I love filthy, bring on the filthy. I love it, but I don't see there being any need for it in Darth Vader, but that's just me. All right, next up, Scott Brooks writes, Hey, John, new subscriber. Well, thank you so much for being a subscriber here, Scott. I appreciate that. About the AMC Universal deal, Cineworld uh, responded, but didn't say they wouldn't play Universal films. Does their agreement mean no Universal movie will play at any Cineworld, Cinemark, Regal theaters? Could Universal movies only play at AMC theaters? Well, this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is where it really uh, all comes. The crux of it is. See, it's easy. It's one thing for Universal and AMC to say, we've made a deal that Universal can put on their movies after 17 days. That's great for AMC to say that. But unless Regal and Cineworld and Cinemark and Landmark and all the other theaters agree to that as well, at least the bigger theaters Unless Regal agrees to it too, they can't do it. Because Regal's going to say to Universal, we will not play your movie in our theaters. This is what Regal just put out in their press release yesterday. We will not play your movie, any movie, in our theaters that does not respect the 90-day, roughly 90-day theatrical window. Period. So what is Universal going to do? Are they going to say, well, then I guess we'll only play our movies in AMC theaters. That would be suicide. AMC only represents about 20% of the screens out there. About 40% in North America, but only about 20% worldwide. So are you going to put out, are you going to throw away $500 million on Fast and Furious 9 because you can't play it on any other screens other than AMC screens? It won't happen. That's why I said, 
it's great for AMC and Universal to make that deal, but if Regal doesn't get on board, it's meaningless. It's completely meaningless. Because Universal is going to want Fast and the Furious and Jurassic World on as many screens as possible. And if those theaters say, we're not putting your movie on our screens unless you respect the theatrical window, then Universal has no choice. Then Universal has no choice. So if, and it's a big if, if Regal stands their ground, you know, and, and yesterday's article, again, cold day in hell, said the article, that we're going to agree to that deal. We are not going to play any movie that doesn't respect the theatrical window. If, and it's a big if, Regal stands their ground, and who knows, maybe they change, maybe they chicken out. But if they stand their ground, then Universal's got no options. They're going to have to respect the regular three-month theatrical window to make sure their movies get played on all the screens. So, And if they don't, their only other option is to only play it on AMC screens, but that's not a real possibility. Universal, they know they're just leaving too much money on the table if they do that, so I don't see that happening. But <laughs> crazier things have happened, man. Can't say anything with definitive certainty because who knows? But on its surface, it looks to me like uh, they're just going to have to respect the theatrical window, but you never know. We'll have to wait and see. Remember, Fast and the Furious isn't for like another six months. So we're still a long ways away from figuring out where this is going to fall, but let's see what happens. Good question, Scott. Next up, Ben writes, Hey, John, my binge into genera movies. I, I'm, I'll be honest. I don't know what a genera movie is. My binge into genera movies I've never seen before. Uh, do you mean genre movies that I've never seen? Oh, you probably meant genre movies. My binge into genre movies I've never seen before continued yesterday, and I finally saw Aliens. Nice. Still haven't seen Alien. You know what? I know a lot of people who have seen Aliens, but have never seen the original Alien. It's kind of weird. Uh, I still haven't seen Alien. Anyway, I loved Aliens. I see what everybody is talking about. Uh, it's my new favorite Cameron movie by a long shot. Nine out of ten, just great. Oh, Aliens is fantastic. It is my second favorite action film of all time. Oddly enough, my favorite action film of all time, <coughs> and it depends on how you define action film, but my favorite action film of all time is another James Cameron movie. True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I love that movie. Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger, Tom Arnold, Jamie Lee Curtis, um, Tia Carrera. Oh my gosh, she's so hot in that movie. Um, the late great Bill Paxton. Uh, that movie is amazing. But yeah, Aliens, man. One of the greatest, most fun films ever. It is a true action horror. You know what I mean? Aliens is a true action horror. I love that movie to no end. I'm glad you finally had a chance to watch it. Now, do go back and watch Alien, but be prepared. Alien is a completely different kind of movie than Aliens. Yes, you got Sigourney Weaver in there uh, playing Ripley still, but the first Alien is a very different movie from its sequel, Aliens. You'll see what I mean, but it's absolutely worth a watch. Make sure you go and watch that one too, Ben. All right. Uh, Concepicon30 writes, uh, Hey, John. Hello. My question is, do you think going forward, movies and their box offices will forever be categorized as before COVID and after COVID? No, I really don't. Uh, but anyway, 
before COVID and after COVID, uh, because there is a distinct possibility that the billion dollar film is an endangered species. Here's the thing, though. I think everybody forgets that this whole situation we're in right now is temporary. Now, whether it's temporary by another three months or whether it's temporary by another six months or whether it's temporary by another full year, whatever. But one way or the other, the situation we're in right now is temporary. We will come out on the other side of this. <coughs> How long it's going to take to come out on the other side of this, I'm not really sure. But I honestly believe that once we do come out on the other side of it, that you are going to see a very quick return to what we would call normal. I think once we come out of the other side of it, you will see a very, very quick return to normal. Now, the reason I make that assumption is because, and some of you have heard me say this before, here in Los Angeles, um, restaurants open back up again for a while. The moment restaurant, you would think, oh, you know, no one's going to go back to the restaurants and blah, blah, blah. Guess what? They packed out. Some intelligently keeping social distancing, taking out half their tables, blah, blah, blah. Some not so smart doing really stupid stuff like packing everybody in, not doing any social, whatever. But the point is that the moment restaurants opened again, people were anxious to get back to it. And the restaurants filled. That's why I believe whenever we get back to our regular rotation of all the movie theaters are open, blah, 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 I think you are going to see people, not everybody, not everybody, but if the, the restaurants are any indication, I think you're going to see people get back to it. So when this thing is all behind us, and again, I don't know if that's going to be in three months and six months or in a year from now, I don't know, but whenever it is. I think the return to normal patterns is going to be a lot quicker than other people think. I really do. Again, I don't know how long that's going to take to get to that point. But once we do, I think you're going to see people readopting, getting back to relative normalcy real damn quick. Not everybody, but I think a lot of people. So, um, so no, I, I don't think we're going to see before. I think we're going to see some asterisks about the COVID era, but not pre-COVID, post-COVID, because I think once we get on the other side of COVID, I think things are going to get relatively back to normal. But we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to see. And that's just my guess. I'm no expert on this. That's just my guess. All right, next up. Tony Rodriguez writes, as long as G4 brings back Attack of the Show and Kevin Piera, I'm all in. When uh, when they went off air, I needed my nerd fix, and that's how I found you and Movie Talk to fill the hole in my life. I was watching since it was tech TV and you since the closet days. Oh, thanks so much for that, Tony. And yeah, man, listen, I loved tech TV and G4 back in the Leo Laporte days and uh, obviously the the Kevin days and all, and their reviews on their, uh, their gaming reviews and stuff like that. I loved it. I loved it. Uh, and was it, you know, while everybody was crushing over, um, while everybody was crushing over Olivia Munn, I was crushing over Morgan Webb. Morgan Webb is who I was crushing on uh, back in the day when she used to do the, the video game show back at uh, her and Adam, uh, Adam Sessler, I think it was. They did that video game review show. I always thought, oh, Morgan Webb, that was that was my TV crush, was Morgan Webb, right? 
And it was kind of surreal when <laughs> back when I was doing my Lionsgate show for Comic-Con HQ, um, we actually had some discussions about maybe getting a Morgan Webb on. So I was, I was like, I was starstruck, whatever. But anyway, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how different they will make it because you don't just want to make it exactly the way it was. It's going to be interesting to see if they do bring back any of the key players, uh, whether it's Kevin. I doubt they'll they'll get Olivia back um, or, or whether it's Adam or Morgan or I, I don't know. Hell, maybe they get in Leo Laporte to come in and do a tech show or two. I don't know. But it's going to be interesting to see how close to the original that they do it. All right. Thanks a lot for that, man. D.A. Miller writes. Hello, John. I noticed an article. I sent it to you that abyss and true lies have not been. We were just talking about true lies uh, have not been set on Blu-ray or 4K. I believe that's true. Uh, they celebrated the 30th and 25th anniversary last year. Jane, uh, you probably meant James Cameron is holding those up for final approval. Could we see their Blu-ray or 4K before Avatar 2? Listen, by the time Avatar 2 comes out, I'm not even sure Blu-rays are going to be a thing anymore. Like Rob and I talk all the time and I'm not, I'm not saying you should want the demise of physical media. It's not a matter about whether it should. It's, the, it's just a matter of fact that it is. Physical media is dying. <coughs> you know, the biggest manufacturer in the world of Blu-ray players stopped manufacturing them last year. More and more companies stopped manufacturing. As a matter of fact, even the new PlayStation 5, one of their options, and it's gonna, I guarantee you it's going to be their number one seller, is going to be the option without a disk drive at all. No physical disk drive. No Blu-ray drive. So a lot of people who even watch their Blu-rays via their PlayStation, not going to be able to do it anymore. So I'm not sure we're even going to have Blu-rays by the time whenever Avatar 2 comes out. I'm not even sure we're still going to have Blu-rays. Uh, but 4K, I don't think so. I think James Cameron is someday he will finally give us 4Ks of like, um, of like true lies and what have you. But I think he's going to, he's all consumed right now with his avatar series it probably won't be till after avatar 2 comes out maybe not even till after all the avatars are out i don't know i mean who knows we can keep our fingers crossed but that's my guess right now da all right jared's reviews writes we all know that the fox motto for x-men continuity schmontinuity uh was and for the most part has worked in their favor but what is one thing you would have liked some sort of explanation of? Mine's more of a continuation, but the father-son aspect of Quicksilver and Magneto, they ditched. Well, I mean, the reality is they never really made a big deal out of it in the movie anyway. Like, it was always just a, oh, kind of thing, but never a big major point. And they did abandon that. Listen, honestly... The only thing that really bothered me, like it didn't bother me when Sabretooth went from Tyler Maine to Lee of Schreiber. That didn't bother me. It didn't bother me when this character was suddenly a different character. It didn't bother me when they did something completely contradictory to what a previous, I don't care. X-Men's philosophy was continuity, schmontinuity. But the one thing I will say that I would have appreciated a little bit of exposition on to figure out was at the end of X-Men The Last Stand, X-Men 3, I believe it was. You know, Charles Xavier dies. He gets disintegrated by Phoenix, right? <coughs> at the end of the movie in a post credit scene, 
there's a the body of a dude who was brain dead, but the body was still alive. Remember, they talk about that in the classroom scene, in their ethics scene. And at the very, very end, all you hear, you don't see the dude, but all you, you hear is Patrick Stewart's voice going, hello, Moira. Right? And they never touch on that again. The next X-Men movie, Charles is just there. Charles is this there, still Charles, still looking like Charles, all that kind of stuff. Not a single mention about, wait a minute, wasn't you just dead? Wasn't you just dead? You know, I, I they just, they never even touched on it again. It's like, oh, Charles died. Oh, he's back. Any explanation? No. It would have been nice to have, even though it was a continuity, schmontinuity thing, it would have been nice to have a little bit of a, a little bit of exposition on that. Anyway, uh, Spiced Up Shower writes, Spiced Up Shower, <laughs> I know the reference. I uh, just saw The Fugitive on the, oh God, I love Harrison Ford's The Fugitive. Fantastic. Just saw The Fugitive on the big screen and it was fantastic. It has always been a favorite of mine. It made me wonder, what is your favorite Harrison Ford movie slash role that is not part of a franchise i feel he often gets overlooked as a great actor oh i don't think ford gets overlooked as a great actor i I think everybody knows harrison ford's a great actor um there are a couple if we're looking outside of star wars and outside of indiana jones there are a couple that i i really really loved for instance one of the ones that nobody talks about that i absolutely love is sabrina i love sabrina as a matter of fact let me bring this up because i cannot remember uh, I can't remember who directed it. It came out in 1995. Harrison Ford, um, Julia Armand, Greg Kinnear, who will always be Captain Amazing to me from Mystery Men. Julia Armand, who was like the A-list, top-of-the-heap Hollywood actress until she just disappeared for whatever reason. But Olivia Armand, um, or Julia Armand, I should say, Greg Kinnear, Harrison Ford, Sabrina. I freaking love this movie. Let me see if I can bring it up here. I love, 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 love this. Oh, and it was directed by Sidney Pollock. I totally forgot about that. Totally forgot it was Sidney Pollock that directed that. Now it's a remake of a of a 1950s movie. I think this is a, one of the one of those rare examples where the remake is actually better than the original. But that's just me. Love this movie. Love him in it. Another one I really love him in uh, is Witness. That's not it. There it is. Going 10 years further back behind that, where, you know, he ends up in an Amish community. I love Witness. Love, love, love. I I thought I still I can watch that every couple of years. I think he's absolutely fantastic in that. Obviously, there's Air Force One is one that a lot of people like. Um, There's a number of them, but I have to agree with you, Spiced Up Shower. For me, it's uh, The Fugitive. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. I that movie that is, I think, my favorite. It's close with Sabrina, but I think I'll give the nod to Fugitive. I, I think that's probably my favorite Harrison Ford non-franchise film. Uh, although there was another fug, there was a spinoff of Tommy Lee Jones's character. Um, what was it called? U.S. Marshal. Uh, where he played the where uh, James Earl Jones plays the same character only now he was after who is he after he was after Wesley Snipes Robert Downey Jr. was in that movie too anyway but we'll call we'll still call the first fugitive a non-franchise film all right next up James Hoffman writes 
wouldn't AMC make less money from the 10% PVOD compared to if the movie were still showing in theaters? I guess they are willing to take a pay cut rather than risk getting completely cut out and getting nothing if the movie goes straight to streaming. Well, I mean, but you got to understand your leveraging power, right? Universal understands that they're going to make more money if they put their movies on big screens. They just are. But you're right. AMC is in a period of desperation right now. Where they're just kind of thinking any revenue will do. And so it is, again, it's confounding to me. It's why all the other, like I said, all the other exhibitors right now are pissed as hell at AMC. <clears throat> It's like, just because you're in a bad way doesn't mean you need to make things bad for the rest of us. That seems to be the mentality out there right now. That's why you're getting a regal coming out and saying, cold day in hell, man. Like, this what AM, this is what they said. This is what the CEO of Cineworld that owns regal said. This business model they're setting up makes no sense. Makes no sense. So... We'll see, uh, we'll see how that kind of evolves, James. Well, you raise a great point, man. All right, next up, the facility guy writes, DCP, digital... Yeah, I remember that afterwards. I remember that afterwards. Dynamal Cinema Package is all the files that make up a movie. This includes the video and audio MXF uh, material exchange format files, uh, closed captioning, hearing impaired, and any uh, um, alternative languages. Man of Steel's DCP is 150 gigabytes. The 2K video being 143 gigabytes. The 5.1 audio is 6.9 gigabytes. Yeah. So I remember when they were making the big, when, when movie theaters were making their big switch over. Like, remember I just said, that the movie theaters going through their biggest evolution right now with a changeover to subscription-based service, right? Like AMC A-List, that's the name of the AMC, the AMC, uh, AMC A-List, um, uh, Regal has uh, Regal Unlimited, all that kind of stuff. That's the biggest one ever. But prior to this move to a subscription-based service, the biggest transition they ever made was the switching from physical film reels to digital cinema. And I remember in those early days, because of internet, the way it was, you couldn't just transfer at first. You couldn't just transfer over the video files over the internet. You literally had to have trucks deliver these big hard drives. Trucks had to deliver these hard drives to the movie theaters. And they can still continue. Now, of course, today with the internet speeds that we have, you can just digitally transfer. But it wasn't that long ago that they actually had to move these physical hard drives over. All right, Ryan Lohner writes, if Trent Reznor wins that Emmy for Watchmen, he'll only be a Tony Award away from an EGOT, or as I like to say, he'll have an ego. So an EGOT, an EGOT is, is one of the rarest things you can accomplish in entertainment. The EGOT is winning an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. And of course, Tony is for Broadway. Tony is for live stage stuff, right? So if right now, uh, Trent Reznor has two. If he wins the Emmy, he'll have three, and then he'll only be a Tony Award. Now, his style of stuff does not lend itself to winning a Tony, so I don't know if we'll ever see Trent Reznor with a Tony Award. But it's true. He'll be he'll be three of the stages into an EGOT. I think the EGOT has only happened five or six times. I might be off, but it's a very, very small number. I think it's a very, very small number the number of times an EGOT has actually been accomplished. But uh, yeah, if he wins this Emmy, and that's a big if, he'll be one away. All right, Star Wars Santana, I like that name, writes, 
Worldwide theater ticket sales have been on the decline since 2002. True. Uh, 1.58 billion tickets sold in 2019 to 1.24 billion so tickets sold in uh, 2019. Do you think theater ticket sales will ever get back to over 1 billion? Uh, yes. A note number of tickets, not dollars in sales. Yes. This is why I have been screaming and yelling and insisting on my show for years that there are some fundamental changes I believe movie theaters need to do to bring more people back to the cinemas. They're making record numbers of profits. But the reality is, over the past 17 years, you've seen a, a very slow but year-over-year year trickle of a decline in the number of people going to the cinemas, right? And I've been saying for years, there are a couple of things I believe the movie theaters need to do to address that part. Number one, I think the subscription service thing is going to be a major part of that. I think we already started to see more and more AMC started to say we are now seeing an uptick in the amount of people coming to the theaters because of a list. And I think that was only going to get bigger. Another thing I think they need to address. Honestly, I think this is a bigger issue than people think is 25 to 30 minutes of effing trailers before a movie starts. You tell me a movie starts at seven o'clock. There's no excuse for it starting at past seven thirty. There's no reason for that. Also, and I think the subscription service is a part of the addressing of this. I think the individual ticket prices need to be brought down a bit. But that also will entail Hollywood reining in how much they spend on making these movies. Look, if you can spend 20 million less on a movie, you'll make a huge difference in how much money you need to make at the box office in order to be profitable. So I've been saying for years, screaming at the top of my lungs, that I think there are things theaters definitely have to do. But yes, I do think we're going to still see over a billion tickets sold because I think subscription services, and remember, every time you use your subscription service, it counts as a ticket sale. I think subscription services are going to see those numbers increase. And I think if movie theaters can do like, for instance, we got a movie theater in Los Angeles called the Arclight. They have a rule, three trailers, no commercials, the movie starts, boom. So if your movie's supposed to start at 7 o'clock, the actual movie's probably starting around 7.09. Perfect. If more movie theaters can get back to that, it'll make a better movie-going experience. If we can get those prices down a little bit, it'll make it more inviting for people. And if more people can adopt the subscription-based service, I think you're going to see a lot more people venturing out to the movies because we're already seeing it working. If that all happens then absolutely, we will see still over a billion people going per year and we'll probably see the numbers start to increase. But who knows, man? It's all speculation on my part at this point. All right, Johnny writes, Hey, John. Hello, Johnny. Watch some panels from San Diego Comic-Con at home. I watched a few. Listen, I actually enjoyed them. I did. Not as much as, you know, being there in person, but I enjoyed them. Uh, and I'd be willing to pay a certain amount to watch these. I was just talking about this earlier. To pay a certain amount to watch these live, assuming... Those who can go won't trade the experience. Do you think there's a chance they'll also add live streams to future cons? Thanks and stay safe. I don't <clears throat> I don't know if Comic-Con will. And honestly, I don't know that they should. I think you need to maintain the specialness and the uniqueness of being there in person. So I don't think they should stream the panels live. What I do think they should do is they should professionally record all the panels, not just the big panels, 
not just the massive 6,000 seat panels or the 1,000 seat ballroom 20 panels or whatever, but even the small ones have like 15 people in it or, or 85 people or like two or 300 people um, that would come to like Masters of the Web or whatever. I think you record them all and then as soon as Comic-Con is over, put all of them up that you can access for a ticket price. Not a full price of a Comic-Con ticket, but let's say 10, 15 bucks. 10, 15 bucks, you get access for an entire year to all the panels that happened at Comic-Con, including the big ones. I can see them doing that. I don't think they'll go live Hall H, nor do I think they should. I, I don't think they should do live Hall H, but I do think they should record them and then make them available. So listen, as soon as Hall H is over, everybody knows what was said at the panel, but we all still want to watch it. Make it available the day after Comic-Con ends. Uh, so that's the way I would do it, Johnny, personally. All right. Anyway, Mr. Steele writes, I'm back. I wanted to say thanks for everything you do, John. Oh, thanks so much for that, man. Uh, since Movie Talk, I've really enjoyed the shows and I've learned from you as well. Speaking of Movie Talk, uh, please tell me the immortal and stunning Ashley Mova is doing okay wherever she is slash swoon. Yeah, Ashley, <coughs> Ashley was an incredible, you know, I talked the other day about how I think one of the biggest mistakes Collider made after I left was getting rid of the host, you know, getting rid of Sinead DeFries and getting rid of Ashley Mova and Natasha, I believe, was there at the time. People didn't understand what they added to the show. They weren't film commentators. They weren't there to give their film expertise opinions. They brought personality and energy and chemistry to those shows that I think they completely undervalued. And 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 not to be too hard at the people who were still at Collider when I left, but I think a lot of our own audience didn't understand how important the personalities of a Ashley Mova or a Sinead DeFries or a Natasha or a Wendy Lee or whatever. I think even our own audience, I think many times underestimated and undervalue how important they were to those shows and what it was they brought to those shows. Um, and so when I, cause I would get emails all the time. Uh, you, there's no reason for Ashley to be there. She's just there to be a pretty face. And yeah. Ashley was a very pretty face for sure, but you didn't get it. You know, the shows would start with Ashley Mova on the shows, the, the, the days she was hosting. The very first thing she would actually, she would set the tone, set the tempo. And then she would just add this layer of personality to the show that I think everybody underestimated. I knew the importance of it. And that's why I spent a lot of time, um, we would spend a lot of time interviewing a lot of people. Like when it was me and Amy Rose and Dennis, like we would literally, we would get hundreds and hundreds of resumes. And then we would interview like 20 or 30 people. And we would go, we would put a lot of effort into trying to find the right people. Ashley was one of the ones that was fantastic at it. Um, from what I understand, Ashley is, from what I understand, she's very successful these days. I, I believe she's doing real estate now. I believe Ashley's doing real estate now. And again, from what I understand, I think she's quite successful at it. So anyway, that's that's where she's at, if, I, if I'm understanding it correctly. All right, uh, next up here, an anonymous viewer writes, I find it so ironic that the same movie theater chain, AMC, who is very vocal against MoviePass's business model, yet they do something like this that is also an unsustainable business model. Hey, AMC, which coffee did you drink yesterday morning? Oh, I agree. Listen, 
All I can tell you is this. When I was at AMC, our CEO was a guy by the name of Jerry Lopez. And Jerry was a genius. And Jerry led AMC to its biggest successes and positioned them for great success going into the future. It was under his leadership that they laid the groundwork for AMC A-List because they were working on that for years before they finally launched it. It was under Jerry that they were laying the groundwork for the AMC Prime Theaters and that we actually started executing AMC Prime Theaters. It was under Jerry's leadership that a lot of great things happened at AMC. Under this new guy, Adam Aaron, who... I don't know. I never met. I have no idea. He, was, he became CEO after I left AMC. So I don't know him. Um, all I can do is I, I, I really, all I can tell you is this. Jerry Lopez never would have done what Adam Aaron just did. And again, I'm not trying to trash talk on Adam Aaron. I don't know him. But I can tell you with some degree of certainty, there is no way that if Jerry Lopez was still the CEO of AMC, there is no way they would have done this. Uh, so it's, it's, it is. It's confusing to me, Anonymous. I completely agree with you. All right, next up, Dizzy or Drizzy Moose writes, I have returned, Mr. Campion. Sorry, I didn't get a chance to send in a question for a while. No problem, man. I'm just glad you're here anytime you're able to be here. Uh, but my question is, do you think we will see a reintroduction of the black suit when Spider-Man goes back to Sony? Love everything you do for us, kind sir. Thank you. Um, I don't think so. I mean, look, nothing's impossible and there's no reason they can't do it if they don't want. But even when they had the exclusive rights to, to Spider-Man, they only used the black suit once, right? So it's possible it's possible, especially if they do decide to do something with Venom, there is a possibility they could incorporate that, but I don't think it would be permanent, nor would it be a long-term thing. Momentarily, maybe, maybe. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't bid against it, but I also don't think it would be a long-term thing. I, I don't even know that it would last an entire movie, but could we see it? I think there's a pretty decent chance of that. I think that would make sense, Drizzy. I really do. Thanks for sending in the question, man. All right, Stubble McShave writes, I think it's funny that you poo-pooed my theory that Dune teaser would be released in August. Also, do you think the studios should have a central organization similar to how NATO is for the theaters in order to make the negotiations better? Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think there was a need to put out a Dune teaser in um, or a Dune trailer in August, right? Because we still don't know where the theaters are going to be at come December. And it's still September, October, November. Well, it's only four months away. That's not bad. Actually, four, four months is perfectly fine. I'm, I'm not Honestly, I'm not quite sure why I would have had a problem with them. Unless I was just worried that I don't think they can make their December release date. But see, when you get into five or six months away from a movie being in theaters, I think putting out trailers is too early. Five or six months, I think, is too early. And a lot of people will go, we'll be six months away from a movie and people will be panicking, writing, John, where's the trailer for this movie? Is there a problem? It's like, it's still six months away. Relax, relax. But August, September, October, November, December, we'd only be like four months away. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I had a problem with that. I'm not sure why I doubted that because four months isn't too soon. A anyway, um, there is an organization for the studios. It's called the MPAA. Sorry. It's now just called the MPA, 
It used to be called the Motion Picture Association of America. It's they take it, they've taken out the America part. Now it's just called the Motion Picture Association. That Disney is a member of, Warner Brothers is a member of, Paramount is a member of, Sony is a member of, uh, Universal is a member of. They, they all make up the MPA. But uh, this isn't something that I think every. Obviously, this is something that the studios don't all agree on. So I don't know. I don't know if we would get a collective bargaining situation here. Um, so listen, the theaters do have an organization, the National Association of Theater Owners (NATO). The studios do have an organization, the MPA. But I don't think those bodies are really positioned to do. They certainly weren't put together to go into labor negotiations, right? They weren't designed for collective bargaining. That doesn't mean that they can't, you know, utilize their resources to try to engage in some collective bargaining if both sides thinks it's it's uh, beneficial. But that's not really what those bodies are for. So to answer the question, well, yeah, the, the body like that already kind of exists. You know, the theater's got NATO. Studios got the MPA. But, it, but these organizations don't have wide-reaching power, nor are they meant to be um, organizations that make the studios act in unison, like say a NFL Players Association Union is, or an NHL Players Association Union is, or any other type of labor force. It's not that same kind of thing. It's a little bit different, but the but the organization does exist. All right, Murray Reich writes, <coughs> Hey, John, do we get any college credits for watching your daily camping classroom show? You should. There should be credit. Matter of fact, I should be charging tuition. I think that's what I'm going to do, guys. From now on, whenever we break into the Campia classroom, I think I'm going to charge you, I don't know, $500 tuition. Because I'm not just giving you lessons. I'm giving you life lessons. That's a ridiculous... I don't know why I just said that. Uh, Lakers win tonight, writes. Super question. What's the thing your mic is sitting in called? It looks like a spider web. Oh, this thing right here? This is called a shock mount. That's what this is called. Now, what a shock mount is, is... It is completely suspended by these black rubber bands. Let me, I don't know if I can do this right now, but let me see if I can. Because some people may find this interesting. Some people may totally not find this interesting, but some people might. Let me see what I can do here. Um, can I bring up the video for it? I think I can. Okay, yes. So here, let's, let's, let's take a closer look at this, shall we? So... Here we have the microphone itself, right? Now, instead of what a lot of people do is you can just physically attach it to your mic stand or your boom arm or whatever. But the problem is if I knock on the table, right? The vibrations come through the metal and you can hear it in the micro. Boom, boom, boom. What these things called shock mounts do is you'll notice it's completely suspended on every angle by these elastic bands, right? These elastic bands suspend everything. So even if there's banging or whatever, the vibrations don't travel through the elastic bands. So it's kind of like the, um, the microphone itself is just sitting suspended. So it creates any physical noise, any reverberation or anything like that. And that's what a shock mount is for. And that's what these are called, shock mounts. Um, <clears throat> and I highly recommend Highly, highly, highly recommend whether you have a scissor arm for your mic like I do here. Let me see if I can bring up a, a, an image of it here. Whether you have a scissor mic arm like I do or whether you just have it sitting on a table stand, I highly recommend 
if you're going to do any podcasting or YouTubing or whatever, uh, I, and you're not going to use a boom mic, I suggest making sure that you get a uh, shock mount. It's it's very, very important piece of equipment that's often overlooked. Excellent, excellent question, uh, uh, Lakers win. That is not a dumb question at all. Okay, next up, uh, Dave Coker writes, Cineplex is opening theaters in Canada starting tomorrow, July 31st. I understand there's already some Cineplex theaters open in certain cities. Anyway, uh, showing older movies with tickets costing five and 50 people allowed in each screening. Ancaster Cineplex, here I come. Ah, the Ancaster Cineplex. I That has traditionally been my favorite movie theater in the world to go to movies to. Uh, I have gone to many, many movies to the Ancaster Oh, it used to be called the Silver City. Cineplex used to call that movie that movie theater Silver Cities. And I now I think they just call it a Cineplex. I think they dropped the name Silver City. Anyway, I've seen many, many movies in that theater, man. It's still my even though I've grown to hate Cineplex a little bit because they act really evil. Uh, this is just my opinion, but I think they're they're a trash company right now. But whatever. I've got a lot of memories in that theater, man. And yeah, listen, this is important because you can't just open up the theaters when Tenet comes out. You've got to open up before that to get people back into the, the, the habit of coming to the movie theaters. Even if only five or 10 people come, you got to get the, the wheels moving. You know what I mean? And uh, I think that's important for them to do. And I think that's citing five bucks for an older film, get to go see a classic film on the big screen again. Good deal. It's a good deal. All right. Uh, an anonymous viewer just sends in a $20 tip just to be nice. Thank you so much, man. I pre It's always nice when people just want to show support for the show. Thank you so much for that, man. I appreciate it. All right. Old Man Playing writes, game recommendation. The PS4 hit exclusive Horizon Zero Dawn. It's coming to the PC in August. Ooh, I might have to check that out because I've heard a lot of people talk about that game. Look great on PS4. Absolutely beautiful on PC. Great cinematic storytelling along with the action. I've had a lot of people tell me about Zero Dawn, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, and we're very, very big on the game. I, I never you know, watched it. I never saw anybody play it. I never, obviously I never played it myself, but anytime these games can come to PC and I can give them a shot. Cause I, I'm, I'm useless. People tell me, Oh, but I have a hard time doing game controls with a mouse and keyboard. To me, it's like, that's the easiest thing. I am useless when it comes to a gamepad controller. I'm useless when it comes to console control. So like I've got a PS4 pro, I barely ever touch it. Because I'm just useless with those controllers, man. But if it's coming to PC, I may have to give that game a shot, man. Thank you. I had no idea about that. Thank you for putting that on my radar on my plane. I, I appreciate that. Trevor writes, if you could choose any element to bend from Avatar, what would it be? And which element best suits your personality? Glad you took a two-week break. It was actually a three-week break. I've uh, been listening for years. Feel uh, like supporting financially now that I can. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, if I was in the world of Avatar The Last Airbender, which element would I want to control? I think air. Um, yeah, I think air would be the one. I just, I think there's a lot more creative use. I mean, look, everyone is extremely powerful, especially if you are particularly powerful in that style of bending. If you're a very powerful waterbender, I mean, you can move oceans. If you're a very powerful firebender, you could... I mean, destroy cities. If you're a very powerful earthbender, you could move mountains. I mean, it's all, but I think the one I like the most would probably be air. I mean, there's a big argument to be made for fire, 
but I think I would personally go for air. I just, especially with the ability to utilize air to do flight. Um, <laughs> because, you know, Aang would use his glider, but then another one of the bad guys in season, um, one of the villains in Korra, in the Legend of Korra, became an airbender and he discovered the ability to just fly without a glider using airbending. So there's so much you can do with airbending. I would probably go with airbending. All right. Thanks for, so much for that, man. All right. Next up, we just got a couple, just a few minutes left here, guys. Jim writes, one of two. Hey, John, I think there are perks for the AMC Universal deal. AMC contractually must play movies if they do well or not. This could move underperforming movies to uh, on-demand faster with a profit. AMC now builds 6 to 12 screen theaters and installs recliners. Uh, they won't <coughs> have the capacity at some to play underperforming films. AMC 10%, Regal 10%, Cinemark maybe 7 uh, plus landmark profits will be dwindled for PVOD. Does this future-proof the industry? Does this give straight-to-VOD films a theatrical debut at AMC? Here's the big problem with that, though. Remember, we were looking at Disney and Warner Brothers got the model right with the with the three month window. It ensures for Warner Brothers and Disney and anybody else who does it right that you can make big money theatrically and then later use the new paradigm to make big money later. Disney and Warner Brothers are showing how it's done. They're making money here and they're making money here. It's perfect for them. The problem is with a 17-day window, the amount of people going to those movies in the first three weekends is going to drop drastically. It's going to drop drastically. Like a mom and dad with a family of five, they're going to go, oh, okay, we're going to take the kids to see the new Despicable Me. Oh, wait, in eight days, it's going to be back on, uh, it's going to be on TV. Oh, okay, then we'll just, we'll just stay at home with the kids. We'll just stay at home. And instead of making like a hundred dollars, <coughs> pardon me guys, my throat's getting sore. Instead of them making like a hundred dollars in tickets and concessions for the theaters, the movie, now they're going to make 20 bucks. That 20% is going to go to the streamer. 10% is going to go to AMC. 10% will probably go to Regal, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it is a money losing proposition. See, everybody's just assuming that three weekends in the movie theater means it's going to make the same amount of money that it would normally make at three weekends in the movie theater. It won't. It's going to drop drastically. Remember, I quoted that one article in Variety yesterday where they were saying it is going to be, they use the word in Variety, disastrous. Now, look, if, if we lived in a world where they had the 17-day window with three weekends, and in that imaginary world, those three weekends would make the same amount of money they would normally then maybe there's some argument to be made there. But the reality is this, that seven day, th I remember I told this story yesterday, but when I was still working at AMC and I flew out to Leewood, Kansas, where the, the campus was, the, the big main headquarters for AMC is, I'd go out there and I had over a steak dinner. I got to go out for this big steak dinner. The execs at AMC took me out to this fabulous steakhouse. And one of the execs said to me, we were talking a little bit about the theatrical window, because at the time there was some discussion about the theatrical window moving from like three months to two months. And I remember an executive at AMC said to me, now this is a few years ago, but said to me, losing that three month theatrical window would be catastrophic. 
it would be catastrophic. And he was right. Um, and that's why you're not seeing Disney trying to do this. That's why you see Warner Brothers not trying to do this because they understand it's not just best for the theaters to have this three-month window. It will work for the studios too if you do it right because Disney's getting $11 billion in box office in a year and getting 50 million subscribers to their streaming service. HBO, Warner Brothers, has like last in 2018, which wasn't even their best year, they had like $4.5 billion in box office and they have like nearly four, 40 million subscribers to their HBO service. It works for everybody if done right. If done wrong, it won't work. So yeah, it's, it's just a... But look, I'm sure there's a lot of details that need to shake out here. I'm sure there's a lot of details that need to shake out here. Let's see how it all kind of un- unfolds. All right. Last question of the day, guys, comes to us from Ronan, who sends in $20. Thank you so much for supporting the channel on that level. And of course, with $20 or more, uh, we will then later in a few weeks take these questions you sent in and we'll edit it out and put it up as its own video on the channel. Keep your eyes open for that in the future. Anyway, Ronan writes, I know you don't like drama. But I didn't know the YouTube streaming was so cutthroat. There's a lot of people with issues with you from Jay and other YouTube trolls. I just don't get the hate when it could be a great community. Well, I mean, it's and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's between a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. Look, I've said everything that I'm going to say on Jay Washington, right? Everything I have to say about the Jay Washington situation, I've said. I don't need to repeat it. Um, But you see... This is one of the really sad things to me, both in the movie sphere online and in video game spheres online, whether it's Twitchers, whatever, you constantly see this stupid drama of person A and person B. Uh, and like I, I on my YouTube feed, for example, I feel like a lot of my YouTube, about a third of my YouTube feed, I don't know why it's been filled with such and such and such twitch streamer feuding beefing with this twitch streamer oh the latest thing that this other twitch streamer said about this twitch streamer it's like all this stupid drama and it it happens in the movie sphere too and i have not been immune to it you know me i don't care like to me i am not on youtube to talk about other youtubers to me that's bottom of the barrel you're pathetic if you do that, it, it just shows that you have no talent and there's nothing you don't know what else to do other than, well, let's talk about other YouTubers. I think it's pathetic and I think it shows you're pretty weak. Now, I have on a couple of occasions, such as in Jay's situation, I've had to respond because there was some pretty unacceptable stuff. But I even most of the time I try not to even respond to stuff because that's not what I'm here to do. But it is a part of. The gaming industry, I mean, there have been a lot of beefs between other people in in the movie spheres as well. And it's just like, you know what? Is that what we're here for? Who the fuck cares? Who cares? I mean, just move past it. Get over it. But, but I get the temptation because when you look at those like YouTube videos about beefing Twitch streamers, they get a bunch of views. And there are some people who are so who are so um, desperate for views that if that's how you get views, create this drama, then let's talk about the drama because that creates views. I I get so I get the temptation, but I don't get get giving into the temptation. Uh, but it's been around before I started doing this stuff. 
it's it's certainly around a lot on the gaming industry, the movie sphere. It, it is what it is. People just like drama and the weak minded like to air their dirty laundry. Whatever. Um, look. Um, I just think bottom line here. We're all here to talk about the things we love. And that's what I'm going to do is talk about the things we love and uh, the rest of it. Let let everybody else do what they want to do. Let uh, God bless everybody else. You go do what you want to do. Uh, I'm going to continue to do what I do and have been, although I am a fucking nobody, uh, I have been relatively, relatively, relatively successful at doing since I started the movie blog back in the day. And I'm not going to change the way I do things. I know there's a temptation to start beefs with people. I know there's a temptation to talk about beefs between other people. I know there's a temptation to do all this TMZ garbage, but it's just not what I want to be. And it's not what I want to have any part of. And so other people don't have those standards. Some people do. So eh, it is what it is. Anyway, guys, that will do it for today's installment of the John Campion show. Thank you guys so much for being here and being a part of it. Listen, I know there's a lot of things you guys could be doing with your time today. The fact that so many of you came in here to hang out here today so we can all talk about movies and the things we love. That means a lot. And I'm always cognizant of that. A special thank you to all of you guys who did send in the questions because number one, you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported the channel while you did it. And by the way, I want to remind you guys, if you guys want a t- if you guys have a topic or a question you really want to see as a main topic here on the John Campy show, don't forget, go anytime. It's totally free. www.thejohncampyshow.com slash contact. Fill out that form with your topic or question, and you just might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campion show. Anyway, guys, remember to do the four most important things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves. And please, for the love of God, take care of the people around you. My name is John Campion. That'll do it for me for now, guys. And until next time, bye-bye.